Welcome to the Fluff Primer of Steam-Powered Scoundrels, a Malifaux podcast. Okay, let's go ahead and get started. Hey, welcome everyone to Steam-Powered Scoundrels. I am Doug, one of your hosts. With me is Victoria. Hello. And Roman. What year is it? And we might get a f- one or two people coming in. We're not sure. We're going to just put an all call out to the Discord to see if anyone wanted to join us. We're going to talk about fluff. Yeah. Yay. The sort of thing that kind of got us into wanting to podcast in the first place is the fluff. I am not the biggest person into meta, and neither is Victoria. Nope. <laughs> and so originally we decided that we could do a podcast talking about Malifaux Fluff, because no one was really doing that. And while recently I forayed into more meta talk and stuff, which is kind of why Victoria hasn't joined us in a whole lot of recent episodes, mm-hmm. but uh, we'll be coming back to form. we got a couple things lined up that we're really excited about. We are really excited about, you might... Uh, cringe at the thought, but <laughs> I will be joining you oh. in the ship episode. Okay. Because uh, it's Somebody's got to keep us in line? It's going to be hilarious. I'll be the sober one. How about that? Okay. Okay, but we're I going... I will not be the sober one. <laughs> <laughs> oh, is Roman going to be on the ship episode? Oh, no. Oh, no. Okay. Um, Just Discord-wide ship episode. Yep. So, one, this is a return to form for us. Two, this will be kind of doubling as a primer for people that are either new or for folks that want to hand their friends something and be like, this is one of the cool aspects about Malifaux. We think the fluff is one of the strong points, if not its strongest point. And so we're going to try to sell it. And last but not least, we're going to go ahead and just talk about our favorite things we've, we've read or... Yeah, I think it's mostly read. Mostly red. Unless yeah. it's been, you know, Breachside and now Earthside and now uh, Chronicles. What's the new one that's going through the weird Chronicles stories? Just call it Chronicles. Okay. Goodness, those people are busy. Mm-hmm. But uh, unless you've, you know, listened to that, then yeah, it's, it's been reading. Lots and lots of reading. Although I wouldn't, I wouldn't be disappointed in a TV show or a movie. No, never. Or an anime. Because I'm a weeb. Okay. I, don't, I don't think I don't think Japan cares about American miniature war games. Even if they did, we've uh, we've badmouthed the thunders enough that I I doubt they're going to draw it. <laughs> okay, fair point. <laughs> I mean, like apparently you can make anime in America now, so we could just do that despite the Japanese. You could talk to Rooster Teeth, maybe. Oh yeah, let's go talk oh, to yeah. those guys. <laughs> Yes, I don't represent this company whatsoever, but I wish you to use their IP. (laughs) I mean, if Weird wants to make me a representative, I don't think that's the best decision they've made, but not the worst. Uh That's kind of up there. Thanks. Thank you for that vote of confidence. Okay, Fluff. You know I love you. (laughs) Malvo takes place in an alternative fantasy alternate okay alternative history slash fantasy world that is adjacent that is earth adjacent it's really hard to like explain in the very short but once we explain it it's pretty easy to understand so it's technically earth they've had relatively similar earth history with a few significant changes but i think the big thing you need to just understand is that magic has always kind of been a thing like, 
every kind of magic. Every single culture's different take on magic, they all existed, you know, now or at some point. So history has kind of just passed along like it normally does, but the first like really big divergence is that the magic started going away. Wizards and all the other terms people use for those that cast magic weren't as powerful, weren't able to do as many spells or as more powerful spells. And more or less, um, it just kind of started dying off. And eventually, a organization, a relatively large organization, we'll refer to them as the Council from now on, got together and decided that they were going to try and fix this once and for all. So they did a bit of research, and they found a particular place in North America, which would be Santa Fe in our world. And they got everyone they could gather together, every single magic user they could find, and they created a powerful spell that I think took them a couple of weeks. Yeah. Hmm. I'll look that up. I don't think any of you guys... doesn't matter. <laughs> a ritual that took a very, very long time to do. At the end of that ritual, they basically ripped a big old hole in space-time. And that killed a whole heckin' lot of them, but the ones that were there and still survived, uh, they got to reap the benefits of what happened next. The portal ended up being a gateway to another... Well, we're not entirely sure, but we're pretty sure it's a whole other planet. I mean, there's nothing else that would really exist in that same way, because they're still relying on physics, more or less, of probably another planet that appeared to be abandoned. However, it did have one large settlement that they came across almost immediately once they crossed over this breach, and they eventually called it Malifaux City. And they called the entire land, or maybe even planet, continent, whatever, Malifaux itself. So that's where the game gets its name. It is Malifaux, and a good portion of the story and happening go on in Malifaux City. So those are Two distinct things, but relatively similar. So it is this not, in fact, a French game. <laughs> it is not, in <laughs> fact, a French game. Nope. So, the big old town that they come across is abandoned, which is, you know, super creepy, weird. It's just got a huge mishmash of different types of architecture. Some of it very familiar and re- resembling Earthside architecture. But they started finding, like, lots of really cool technology and eventually came across uh, Magical Glowing Rocks, the MacGuffin of the series. And I don't I don't mean MacGuffin as, like, a way to put it down, but uh, it's the catalyst for a lot of the stories, so the sort of thing everyone's fighting over, and it works really, really well in the context of the story. So it's called Soulstone, and it's more or less magic batteries. It is a rock that you can pull energy from to cast magic really well. I should mention that on this side of the breach, the magic was a lot easier to do. So you got all these really powerful wizards that survived the massive explosion, now sort of coming across ancient technologies, new magics, powerful stuff. Uh, So it could uh, get a bit volatile there, but they were more or less cordial about it to begin with. So while magic was pretty powerful in Malifaux, Earthside, it was still what it was before, very, very weak, not able to do much. But now that they have these magic battery rocks, they could just send those across the breach back to Earth, and then people could start casting powerful spells again. So this became a really, really, really important resource that they were pulling from Malifaux. But eventually, the natives, there are natives, uh, found out about them, and uh, there started to be some scuffles, some fighting, 
between them and the humans, and the natives were references the Neverborn, which is a faction in the game. And they are, well, it's kind of hard to describe what exactly they are except for the original inhabitants because they vary considerably in appearance and what they do, all the way from, like, spirits to um, demon-like, your classic demon-like creatures, to technically puppets as well. So we just... I think Nightmare Creatures is a relatively decent explanation for what they look like. And at the same time, a magical tome was discovered that taught people how to raise the dead. Woo! Yep, and that guy uh, immediately attempted to take over all of Malifaux City, and he got pretty darn close. So, um, start off with the wrong foot with necromancy, and that will lead over to, I guess, quote-unquote, modern day, which is not anywhere close to our modern day in Malifaux, but... So, all that happens... All that history doesn't necessarily mean a whole ton in the context of this game, in the context of Through the Breach, all other stuff. Eventually, uh, bad things happen, and the Breach closes, uh, with a very, very uh, ominous message being tossed through the Breach right as it closes, a human corpse with the word ours written on its chest, uh, cut out of it like with a knife or with a claw. And so... Uh, suddenly the big old supply of soul stones was cut off and Earthside began to panic. This is around the late 1700s when all this went down. So for about eh, 50-ish years, war happened. Lots of war. Uh, referred to collectively as the Black Powder Wars. So Black Powder Wars happened um, about 20 years after the first breach closed and... The people to sort of rise up and take power after all this happened wasn't a specific nation, but a collection of very powerful merchants known as the Guild of Mercantilers. And so, yeah, 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 which is yet another faction. So this guild pretty much ran most of the civilized world, Earthside, for almost 100 years. With an iron fist, very fascistic. But I guess the one of the nice things is that they very much instill the sense of gender equality in the sense that you can do work for me, I don't care who you are, money is power sort of thing. So good on them for that. Eventually, hey, the breach reopens. Hooray. Woo. And uh, people panic because last time it was closed, something really awful happened. So they were afraid that, I don't know, some sort of super Satan would come through and destroy Earth or something. But once that didn't happen, they cautiously went through and found that um, there was no one there again. Um, Seems like humanity had been wiped off the face of that planet. But they recolonized because, hey, you gotta get your magical batteries, right? And so, because it's the guild running at this time, and sort of due to the fear of what had happened last time, it didn't attract the same sort of people as the first time. The first time was very much like, oh, this is a, like a new age of exploration, so uh, people of all sorts, like explorers and artists and scholars and all that sort of thing, were flocking to Malifaux because of all this new and wonderful things that were being discovered. No, not so much. It's very definitely a dangerous place, so, you know, let's just send our prisoners and all these other people we... Kind of don't mind if they die. And then they can slave away in the mines until they die. Hooray. Great. So this becomes... It goes from uh, age of exploration to age of, hey, we found a new Australia. Yes. (laughs) Oh, God. Yeah, that makes a disturbing amount of sense. Also, correct me if I'm wrong, but didn't the breach reopen like a hundred years? And I don't think they ever confirm to the day or not from the the first closing. 
Um, I believe it was almost 100 years, but I can double check that. Okay, because I, I just have something... It's been a minute since I've looked this far back in the, the fluff for the, like, starting point. Yeah, I'm but currently... I, I was remembering that, and I was remembering, like, while there weren't people, like, the, the signs of, of battle from whenever it closed were still fresh. Like, that was the, the weird, creepy thing about it. Mm-hmm. 17, sure was... 1797 was... The year it closed. Oh, 1897. Okay, exactly 100 years. It doesn't specifically say the day, which leads me to believe that it's not the same day, because I feel like that would be something they'd point out. Yeah. And still, 100 years is eerie in and of itself. But more or less, okay. So, the guild controls everything. They control the soulstone mining and all the soulstones being sent back to Earthside, and so they are incredibly powerful with all the money. But um, people aren't exactly happy with how they're tra- being treated, as you do, and so several different factions sort of branch off from the guild's control, and that's kind of where we are in Malifaux now. It's been about 12, 13 years? 11 years. 11 or 12 years. <laughs> Since um, the breach reopened, and so a significant amount of stuff has happened. The world has almost ended several times, and we might talk about a few of those things as they stand. But okay, let's let's go ahead and get into um, the factions and the visuals. So, if you weren't aware, it's early 1900s. This is sort of the end, the near the end of the whole Wild West. Genre. I guess we can call it genre. Uh, the Wild West as we know it was getting close to ending around this time. So there's a lot of Western sort of cowboyish themes throughout the characters, but also Malfo City is definitely a analog to Victorian London in both the industrialization and the horrific living conditions of the poor and people being stacked on top of each other and all this other fun stuff. So Weird, the company who makes Malifaux, gets to play with both these themes as much as they want. Along those lines, you also have the Nightmare Creatures, as we mentioned before, the Neverborn, where you get that sort of feel aesthetic. And then, of course, these new technologies that were discovered lead to um, very interesting ways that technology has developed, as opposed to um, what it eventually became. So we get mm, steampunk as a sort of sub-theme. There is... A faction, really two factions that kind of take advantage of that more than others. And on top of that, we need kind of a silly faction. So there is another group of Malifaux denizens that don't really associate with the Neverborn whatsoever because they're kind of rowdy and a bit difficult to control. And these are the gremlins, now referred to as the Bayou faction. But these are little green dudes, practically your stereotypical fantasy goblins. But instead of, you know, your fantasy setting, this is... You know, closer to modern day. And so these are actually hillbilly slash Cajun goblins that, uh, well, they, they do stuff. They're a hot mess, but I think that's what people love about them. Uh, and lastly, because we can, we also have an Asian theme in faction. They are the Ten Thunders, and they both bring the sort of um, Japanese and Chinese and Korean and, I think, Vietnam uh, aesthetics to the game, as well as being a sort of mafia-esque criminal organization that's kind of got its fingers in everyone else's business. And I think that's... Oh, and uh, zombies. Zombie factions. 
So I think I covered all seven of them as gener- generally as I can. And I think that's a relatively okay backstory. I guess we can really quickly cover some of the huge points that's happened since the breach reopened. Eventually, the union, the miners, and several other different industries unionized and became a very powerful organization that is now referred to as the Arcanist because it is both the legitimate side, the union, and the less legitimate side, the more um, freedom fighters or terrorists, depending on uh, which side of the... Which, which side you're on, that uh, might be a little bit more aggressive with uh, how they feel about the guilt and a few other themes. So, the sort of big bads of Malifon, you think, that's the guilt, right? They're the fascist kind of regime that has control over everything. It's, like, it's not that straightforward. None of these factions are strictly good or bad. There's good things about them and bad things about them. And the guild is no different. The actual big bads are the people that kind of sort of destroyed Malifaux the first time. Uh, considering them like kind of like Lovecraftian elder gods, but they used to be in power and now they're not. They're trying to get that power back. And there are 13 of them, and we've met just about every one of them at this point, and uh, almost all of them are still in play some form or another, obviously trying to get their old power back. And if any of them achieves that level of power, they're pretty much going to destroy or control all of Mouth of Foe, and possibly Earth as well, now that there's that big old hole that they can just walk through. That was sort of one of the balancing things that why there's not just one of these tyrants uh, walking around today is that all of them were gaining power at the same time and sort of keeping each other in check. So if just one of them pops up, then that spells pretty much doom and end times for everyone else. So that's tough. And those are, yeah, those are your bad guys of Malifaux. Surprisingly enough, uh, several of them make their way into the minis game. And uh, I guess the one faction that is most keen on keeping them from gaining power again uh, is harboring the most out of everyone else. <laughs> Okay, I can go into sort of the good and bad of each fashion real quick. You're curious about that. So, yeah, guild. A bit fascistic, a bit corrupt, a lot of those things, actually. However, they are, they are really the people, the organization that is keeping humanity um, not being exterminated by one of the other factions. And um, a good portion of them genuinely believe and are protecting innocent people. So, it really depends on which master, which theme you go to. So, if you weren't aware, each game uh, of Malifaux usually has a particular most powerful character called a master. I believe it's like a warcaster in War Machine and a captain in Guild Ball and your warlord in 40k and all this other stuff. There's here's the big, the, you know, the big honcho, and that's usually what the theme is based around. So it really depends on which mass you're playing. It depends on uh, if you're sort of playing a quote-unquote good person or a bad person. But a lot of them are also very, very gray morally. So unlike guild, most people would probably consider the majority of resurrectionists to be bad. Uh, they kind of have that bad rap of, I don't know, raising the, the dead and then trying to take over the world. Well, that's honestly really just a few of them. Weird has done a really, really good job of making resurrectionists sympathetic. Or some of them. Some of them are just 
almost comically evil, but in a great way. So you kind of have like a, a Dr. Frankenstein that's making horrific combinations of monsters and you have a Jack the Ripper that's killing prostitutes and then raising them up as his lackeys. He is not a good person. We are not saying he's a good person. These are bad things. But also you have a lady that's going around and sort of being a beacon for the desperate people of Malifaux, the ones that are cast out into this massive quarantine zone that takes up a good portion of Malifaux City. And she is, um, you know, whoever comes to her are treated fairly, whether they be living or undead. And then there's this other lady who's, uh, who's undead herself, who all these uh, discarded undead sort of flog towards as she is kind of the protector of the forgotten and they just kind of want to do their own thing and don't have any sort of nefarious purpose behind them so they do they really do a good job of making some of these characters sympathetic after that is the arcanists which is my faction and roman's original faction so yes one they are for workers rights and protecting the people from the overreach of the guild and where the guild won't lend a hand to those people out on the frontier trying to survive, but also uh, they're a bit slightly aggressive terrorists and a cult of uh, cannibals and a guy who's only really cares about creating the sort of old uh, monsters of Earthside mythology and doesn't give a crap about uh, regular people at all. So... There is nuance as to um, who you're playing as and what they could possibly be fighting for. Next up is the Neverborn, and um, any Neverborn player will tell you that they're just defending their homeland, but they probably don't need to be ritualistically sacrificing human beings to feed their children so that they can immediately grow up into giant murderous monster machines. So yeah, there's, there's, you probably can already see what's going on there. It's like, yes, they are technically there. Not technically, they are fighting off uh, people that are encroaching onto their homeland, but they're also being incredibly cruel and enjoying every last minute of uh, murder and butchery for some parts. And then there's the the child that's a huge uh, psychic on Earth, but uh, when he dreams, he sort of astral projects to Malifaux, and he's such a powerful psychic, he can summon nightmare creatures, and he just murders people for fun. What's a, what's a good thing about the, the Neverborn? Roman. Technically, the psychic you were just talking about is unbeknownst to himself containing one of the tyrants. Fair. Okay. So is Pandora. Yes. Um, there is a character oh, called Pandora. Quote, she has quote, a box. Unquote, quote unquote containing. Quote unquote containing. They're holding it together, kind of. Oh, yeah. Zoraida. Zoraida's kind of like, I don't want to say behind the scenes pulling the strings, but that's kind of her thing. She's an incredibly powerful a witch and a manipulator, but in a sort of way of like, she her main goal is stopping the tyrants. She knows more about them than really anyone else, it seems, in this game. And all she's ever doing is trying to stop um, them from ascending. So, yeah, definitely good aspects in the Neverborn. Next up is the Outcasts, and the Outcasts, um, they're out for themselves. It's in the name. It's a couple, like, themes of people that are either, like, too selfish or would not work well with anyone else, as well as mercenaries and other folks just doing what they want without really care for anyone else. Uh, loyalty to the coin as it is. And a tyrant. And, and a tyrant. And Tyrant. Well, that's that was one of the things where they, uh, Tyrant doesn't really get along with anyone else. Very accurate. So that is definitely like a true neutral kind of thing. Since they're fully off of themselves, they could be doing good things. They could be doing bad things. Although 
You know, probably Hamlin's not doing good things. Probably. Yeah. Definitely He's not Hamlin's handing not out free boxes of che- Cheerios to children. No. Jack Daw's more of like a force of nature than someone who's truly evil, either. Tara's probably good. Sometimes. Sometimes. Yeah, she, she's mostly <laughs> mercenarying. Yeah. Sort of containing, or at least... She doesn't seem to be that aggressively trying to push the whole ob- obliteration thing. And, anyways, moving on. After the outcasts, it is the Bayou, previously known as the Gremlins, the little green dudes. And uh, whereas outcasts were very neutral, these are chaotic neutral. Also, technically my first faction. Okay, yeah. Okay, technically your first faction. Sorry, my bad. Oh, you're, you're good. You're good. And, I, uh, gotta, I, gotta, I gotta be repping Brewy. While they, uh, while they have some characteristics about them that make them seem like minor antagonists in the grand scheme of things, like they can be quite selfish and rowdy and uh, explody and alcoholy. They're stereotyped into these dumb, drunk, little green men that are likely to kill themselves as they are you. And they live in like Australia plus sort of swampland where there's giant pigs and alligators and catfish things that will eat you up. Just an awful place to live. But there are other ones that are just genuinely like protecting their home and wouldn't be doing anything like wrong if it wasn't for these people encroaching on their land. As well as it is also another faction that Zoraida locate uh, is in. Zoraida is works for two different factions, and uh, she also works with the Bayou because she lives in the Bayou. And so, if you're into sort of that kind of goofy, having lots of fun, doing weird things, high risk, high reward sort of play, then yeah, Bayou would definitely be for you. And it's probably the most interesting way you've ever seen goblins portrayed. Uh, last but not least, it is the Ten Thunders. We talked about them before. They're the Asian-y theme faction that's a criminal organization. What's up? I, I thought have, you were going to get some salt, Yon. Uh, I, I, I've built my podcasting character around absolutely hating the Ten Thunders. And it mostly just stems from like a fluff thing that bugs me. That's totally fine. But uh, if you like them, one of the really cool things about them is it's one of Weird's ways of allowing like a lot of color to come out in models. With the whole Wild West theme, a lot of things are kind of subdued on the color palette, but you obviously don't have to paint them that way. But uh, out of the box, or I guess on the box, Ten Thunders are really, really colorful. And they got some some really cool concepts and uh, weird stuff, and they're like Gatling Gun Samurai. I guess what? I guess they're not last but not least anymore. We've got Nath coming up. Uh, it's on the Yeah, we don't know a whole ton about them. We've seen one Masters. We've seen three Masters, technically. Uh, Malifaux's thing, or one of its many things, is that some Masters work for two different factions. And so we know of two that are going into the Explorer Society, which is a sort of a Wild West frontier sheriff that works for the guild. The other one is a treasure hunter a la Indiana Jones that works for the Ten Thunders. Uh, On top of that, Weird has released um, some photographs, I I guess pictures, not photographs, of another master who's a pretty hefty, large man with a big old gun. Uh, And I believe the theme is he's around as he's a massive big game hunter and will basically hunt anything, no matter how much of a bad idea it is. And you can tell that he's made some mistakes because he's missing an arm and a leg. They're robot parts now, though, so that's that's fine. And he kind of looks like Teddy Roosevelt. Yeah, he's basically RoboCop Teddy Roosevelt. Oh, Lord. That's... Okay. And this is the faction that I'm, like, planning on picking up second, so I'm really, really excited to see what Weird has in store. 
But okay, that is my long-winded explanation of the backstory, leaving out all the really cool stuff. (laughs) But that's what we're going to talk about here. I just wanted to get the framework down. And it probably seems really convoluted and a hot mess. And there's kind of a reason for that. Um, I don't agree that it's a hot mess, but at face value, you're kind of wondering why they decide to mash up all these themes at once. And it's honestly because that Malifaux originally wasn't a minis game. It was weird making miniature models. So they didn't necessarily have to keep to any sort of specific theme, but at one point they decided that they wanted to create a game, so they had to figure out a way to tie it together, and you'd think that they would have done it poorly trying to take all these themes and just jam them into one box. But listen to me, a genuine fanboy, it's it, they've done a wonderful job of it. Just sort of taking each theme and kind of containing it within a faction and then building a story around sort of, of each faction where everything makes sense is an amazing job. You got your cowboys in guild, kind of, sort of your default faction. I don't mean, like, default as in they're boring, but, like, they're kind of the faction that everything else is judged on. They're, they're, they're what you look at and be like, okay, that's the closest thing I have to what's normal in this universe. So what else is, is weird? And so, you know, Earthside... Around this time, uh, sort of lots of cowboy aesthetics, so you get into that with the guild, I think more so than anyone else, except for maybe the outcast. The outcast is a very heavy cowboy theme to them, too. But then you got resurrectionists, and you can kind of, like, see how the theme plays off of the guild in sort of way. The resurrectionists are the zombie faction, specifically people that raise the zombies, and that works into it because... A lot of the time, um, necromancers aren't really seen very well in any sort of theme or pop culture. Generally, in cultures, it seems like it's not a good thing to mess with the dead. Dead should stay dead, that kind of idea. So they take that and then they play off of it in that we actually have some good resurrectionists or resurrectionists that have no like nefarious goals in mind but still there's that stigma that makes them sort of the public enemy and um, there are a couple of them that have done some horrific things so obviously the guild is going to want to stop them and so that's where we get the they are kind of the general bad in Malifaux City um, then you have the Arcanists you know you're sort of steampunky kind of aesthetic although they have they're probably the least connected out of all of them. Maybe uh, Neverborn's kind of up there as well. But, you know, when you get into steampunk, well, that's kind of utility. That's industry. And in the industry, I guess general industry, was going to kind of going through this whole, hey, unions are kind of cool. I get treated less like garbage if I'm in a union. So they, they grabbed that idea and they put it into Malifaux. And then they just kind of went with it. It's like, you know what? Um, some of these people that are really all gung-ho about taking down the guild might get a little extreme. So we can kind of put those aspects into there and fit these models into that. And then Neverborn, uh, is anything that kind of looks like it's going to haunt your dreams fits into that category just well. And oh, oh these demon things, they're the, they're the Nephilim. This is just what they look like. And they have this tragic backstory of like having to turn their blood black to fight off one of these tyrants from way back when and that ended up being like toxic and acidic and an awful thing so uh, they've kind of turned that into a weapon and now there's this you know powerful psychic child that uh, just kind of wants to have fun and he's kind of murdering a bunch of people but also he's holding back one of these powerful tyrants from becoming you know the end times 
without then out, knowing it. Yeah, without knowing it. And then Outcast, um, I believe that was just their original intent for what doesn't fit in the other four, sort of the main four. I, I tend to call them that. And it sort of went off from that to these are the mercenaries and the other people that don't really want to work with anyone else. And it works out as a theme. And then Bayou is probably the most connected out of all of them because they're all little green dudes except for the one Swamp Witch. And the pigs. And the, and the pigs. Little green dudes, Swamp Witch, pigs. And then Ten Thunders being relatively connected, but their whole shtick initially was that just about everyone was working for another faction. In fact, I think the original six masters were all split between two factions, and that's that's so works so well with the organized crime idea that okay, so every single one of them actually owes something to the Ten Thunders, so they're working for them, and so it's. Um, while the sort of like general models and a few of the other masters are like very, very Asian themed, then you get, you know, the Relic Hunter, the Indiana Jones, who has no real Asian theme to him whatsoever in that group, as well as the, uh, the guy that owns the casino slash brothel that hands out, um, turbo opium. So that's how they really combine all the themes. And it, 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 it just works. It works really, really well. But okay, that's enough rambling uh, for me. I guess before we get into like our favorites, the stuff we love the most, is there anything else you would like to add as far as like fluff or why it would be appealing? You kind of touched on it initially, but I, I wanted to highlight the fact of other, like how often when you're reading history do you think, oh, like turn of the century, 1800s and the 1900s, do you realize, oh, cowboys and the Victorian London were happening at the same time. Like, those two things always, to me at least, feel like they should be years and years apart. But they're really not, if you look at a history book. And this game kind of, in showcasing all of these different themes and and uh, different aesthetics, kind of lets you remember that, as, as well as the idea of the turn-of-the-century Asia. You have your very strong familial, spiritual traditions... But you also have, hey, look, we have Gatling guns. Uh, so it, it's, and especially when you throw magic into the mix there, uh, I, I just think that, that it's it's a really cool cross-section, semi-historically, albeit a alternate history, but in a lot of the big themes, a lot of that stays fairly accurate as far as aesthetics go. And I think that's just super cool. Want to add anything? Uh, I think you covered pretty much anything I would have said. Okay. Yeah, um, getting back into the history thing, I keep kind of forgetting about that. I, that's a really good sell in that they will weave historical characters, historical events, historical facts into this, but don't make it like straightforward. Uh, it's like, oh, there's no you know X and X character. There's there is no Teddy Roosevelt. There is no Victor Frankenstein. That sort of thing. There's definitely obvious allusions to those characters, but it's not a name for name basis. And you sort of, like, digging into a lot of these names or themes will come up with stuff for you to learn about. Mm-hmm. Like, you get into the you get into the Arcanist, you sort of learn about, you know, the advent of unions in America. And this, this whole thing is kind of an analog for 
Well, it's, I don't know, it's a lot of things, but the whole Soul Stone thing is just really fits nicely into the Gold Rush, and that lends itself even more into the Wild West theme. That's a lot of that's a reason for a lot of people drove west in the first place is to strike it rich, and now you have this whole operation built around this thing you pull out of the earth that is incredibly invaluable and people are willing to kill each other for it. It fits in really nice. And, oh, the poker aspect. Yeah. Um, so cowboys. Cowboys aren't associated with dice nearly as much as they are uh, poker card games. And Weird has weaved that into the system so well. Instead of using dice, you're using a poker deck. It's, it's a modified poker deck, so you don't have face cards. You have 11, 12, and 13 for Jack, Queen, King. And you still have the four suits. They've just got different, name, different names now, and you include both Jokers. And so the Joker aspect is a really cool thing. Just like You can work probability in as much as you want to, but there's still that zero in there that you have to take, and there's still that 14 in there that could save you from certain death. And then you've got a hand of cards that you can cheat with. Only cheating in and of itself is sort of a sub-aspect of, like, that Wild West poker game. Like, Derringer's drawn as someone's claim to have been cheating at cards. Uh, that sort of oh, thing. Yeah. That's that's built into the game. That's how you mitigate um, your bad RNG when something goes wrong. If you've got a decent card in your hand, you can just cheat over that. And the suits themselves. One, each suit has kind of original an original faction associated with it. There's also, like, archetypes to each suit. Different types of magic. Um, even, like, in the, the RPG, it's different hit locations. And each suit um, could get you a very special, like, change to how you attack or how you do actions in the game. So instead of being like, oh, it's just three thirteen, I mean, four thirteens and four fives and four ones in the deck, it's 54 unique cards. And, oh, I can hit you with this 13, but if I use this 13 with this different suit, I get this other cool ability. So they've really, really taken the poker deck and really made it work for this game more than you might initially think. It's like, oh, it's some dumb gimmick. It's like, no, they, they've worked really hard, and it is incredibly awesome and incredibly flavorful. Malifo is a hard sell as a miniatures game on its aesthetic. The system is beautiful and so, so stinging good, and that's why it's still managing to prosper. But I think... So many people believe or think that miniatures is either fantasy or sci-fi. And there's just not a ton of things like it. And that kind of throws people off. And some people aren't a big fan of the cowboy aesthetic. And you'll play many, 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 many games with zero cowboys on the table. Don't worry about that. It's just, we call it cowboys because it conveys the time period it's set in. I guess you could just say, like, steampunk with some other stuff. <laughs> that might sell it better. Yeah, the, the cowboys are really mostly the guild and certain parts of the outcast. Mm -hmm. Just like the, the, like, Victorian is a good chunk of the resers and a little bit of the uh, arcanist specifically where you get, like, the, the more steampunk aesthetic. So, yeah, it, it's the, the cowboy is, is probably the easiest Americanized thing to point at. But it's not the majority of the game by any by any stretch. No. And then if that the aesthetic doesn't turn people off, a lot of them will hear cards. That's dumb. And I get I get where they're coming from because if you hear that someone's using a deck of cards instead of dice as a random number generator, that that seems like a cheesy gimmick. I can I can fully understand that because dice dice are fine as far as RNG goes. 
Nothing wrong with dice. Everyone has lots of dice. Not a lot of people have this this specialty deck for this game. You're just trying to sell me decks. The the easy way, the easy sell I've had on it as far as using cards is, hey, how many times have you had a night where your dice just keep rolling ones and twos? Oh, all the time? You know what only has four ones in it? A deck of 54 cards. Yeah. Took the words right out of my mouth. There's... It's not true randomness. It's kind of a it's a, it's referred to as like a pool a pool draw or something like that, where yeah, you, or you know all of the options and you're only going to matrix. see. That's the term yeah. I've remembered. Yeah, which mitigates a lot of the like my dice hate me or my dice are hot sort of thing, which means Malfo is a lot more keying off of the tactics you play than a lot of other games. Well, and also the the cheating allows you, and, and also feeds very much into the idea of Malifaux is a place where you deal with the your what your fate is and how you can change it. You have uh, agency here, and in the fluff, the essentially the masters have the most agency because they're the ones who have the most magically awakened power. Uh, wow in the story. I guess I never looked at it that way. Makes a lot of sense. And fate, fate, I guess we never talked about the fate sub thing. Well, it's, it's strictly a fluff thing and works even more so into the RPG. If you didn't know, there's an RPG tied in with the game. It's fantastic. I talk about it as much as I do the miniatures game. Um, it fits in well with the settings so much better than a lot of, lot of other tie-on RPGs. I pay, played a decent amount of them, in fact, and this one is the best for me. But you can definitely trust me because I am a fanboy. But let's go ahead and get into our favorite parts of the fluff so Victoria can talk. Um, she was very curious and just let me ramble for 45 minutes. Uh, Victoria, you want to just start off with some of your favorite stuff about Malifaux fluff? In general, just the blending of all the different genres that happens. There, you have your you have your horror stuff and adventure and mystery and all that all that good junk. But while like really dark shit happens on occasion, it they never let it sit for too long. I don't think I've read a story where there hasn't been at least some little bit of comic relief in there somewhere. Oh yeah, otherwise it'd probably be too depressing. Yeah, the uh, they they definitely are masters of uh, macabre humor, especially they like to uh, they they balance the dark with gallows humor. Just this is so out there. Your body's or your psyche's natural defense is to laugh, mm-hmm. and then you have the the true straight up funny things happening with the gremlins doing more slapstick. And by slapstick, I mean they slap the stick of dynamite against their head when it's lit. <laughs> I mean, uh, even even with even with the Rezzer stories, though, there's a lot of there's a lot of just funny stuff that happens. Molly, Molly herself is hilarious. <laughs> yeah, Molly is. Uh, uh, we talked. I mentioned her before. I didn't specify her name, but she is the undead that all the forgotten zombies flock to. And she's just just cheerful and bubbly and loves life and is a bit ruthless and is more than happy to kill uh, people that deserve it. But she's cute. (laughs) Yeah. 
Well, and even like uh, McMorning, who is definitely, as far as his his actions, uh, especially last edition, where he's undermining the guild to allow the Rezzers to do more and more evil shit, he is hilarious, just that he is this truly absent-minded, doddering professor genius guy, and while he's creating horrible, like, monster-stitched-together things, ultimately his personal motivation is i want to figure out eternal life immortality like that that is actually his motivation and it's so often glossed over that when you have a moment of him being serious it's like whoa this is some weighty character statements i like that all the objectively bad people for the most part they find ways to make them very likable Mm -hmm. seamus is Seamus is the classic example of this. Another resurrectionist that uh, is, is... He's the analog for Jack the Ripper. Mm-hmm. And there is nothing about what Jack the Ripper did or what Seamus does that is considered good. He's just a scoundrel. He's a bad person, yes. But he's also, like, I want to say the number one... <laughs> the number one master I see women starting Malifaux on... So, what's the what's the appeal of Seamus, Victoria? Uh, honestly, for me, the appeal of Seamus was the fact that I'm already a true crime nerd. And like, oh, here's this thing I recognize. He's basically Jack the Ripper. I know about Jack the Ripper. This should be fun. And then when you read the fluff, he's actually, like, disarmingly charming and witty but, like, at the same time, you're like, this is a flaming pile of human garbage. I like him against my will. <laughs> yeah, he, he's he's very much that, like, barbaristic charisma. Like, he, mm-hmm. he, is, he is a human train wreck. <laughs> but he's so delightful about being it that you're just like, I can't... Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I don't want to like this, but I just can't help but smile. Exactly. He's like delightfully insane and it's it's kind of why i think it's very similar to why a lot of women are drawn to ted bundy like Mm -hmm. i don't personally understand the draw to ted bundy because i don't think he's that hot um (laughs) going off the rails a little bit ted bundy's not that attractive i mean if you look at him maybe he's 70s attractive but um Uh, let's not talk about 70s Oh no, I just heard a wandering bass line. We need to run. <laughs> but but no, I think it's that... Um, I think it's the same thing that draws a lot of women to true crime. I'm not sure exactly what it is, but something about it is just very... I think it's being able to like be adjacent to something very dangerous, but being safe at the same time. Maybe. I... Yeah. Hmm. We are, we are dudes, so this is just a guess on my part. We don't think that's the case, and that that's fine. I don't. I don't really know. I know for a lot of people that I've talked to that also listen to true crime or watch true crime or read true crime, a lot of it Perform is true crime. Um, a lot of it has a lot to do with it. Actually, eases your anxiety about terrible things happening to oh. you. Because you're like, oh, well, this is what happened to these other people. And there's always, always, always a survivor story of somebody who was 
run into any of these people who are caught. Caught. Let me put that caveat in there. They're always somebody that's been caught. You you listen to their stories and you're like, okay, well, if I'm ever in this situation, here are some, here are some things I can do to try to escape with my life or whatever. That's part of it for me, I know. And a lot of it is also just the psychology of people who do terrible things. It's just like, why? You know? For the walls. At least in Seamus' case. <laughs> to be fair, Seamus found some sort of cursed tome that drove him absolutely insane. Er. I mean, he was a haberdasher before. Obviously, he was insane. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you, okay. History he's, facts. He's... Yeah, he is mad hatter. a haberdasher, which makes him a mad hatter because he's gone insane. And if you didn't know, I don't think I don't know if I know how common this fact is known. The reason that the expression mad hatter exists is because a lot of haberdashers kind of went nuts because one of the ways they finished hats back in the day was to spray them with mercury. And one of the ways you bent brims on hats back in the day is you used your mouth. So these haberdashers were ingesting small bits of mercury over the years, slowly driving them insane. You know, as you do. And yeah, all that, part of this balanced breakfast. That's <laughs> such a dang cool thing about Malifaux. So much there's so much tie-ins with historical stuff that's not overt. I guess the overt stuff bothers me. If there if there actually was literally Teddy Roosevelt walking around, that wouldn't be as fun or. Uh, what's another historical character? Because there's quite a few historical characters in the game or allusions to historical characters. But they keep them relatively subtle and they keep them their own own personalities. I mean, Jack the Ripper doesn't actually have a personality. He just has... A record of his crimes. Yeah. Yes. And, I mean, we've got... we got, a, we got There's a Bonnie and Clyde reference mm-hmm. in the game where... If you didn't Google the name, you probably wouldn't have even noticed that. Uh, Parker Barrows is one of the characters. He's the bandit. He's sort of your stereotypical Wild West train robber guy. And <laughs> uh, Bonnie Parker and Clyde Barrows are very famous outlaws from the 20s or the 30s? I, mm, I think 30s because it was depression, sure wasn't 30s. it? Yeah, yeah, 30 sounds right. The uh, guild ex. Explorer's Sheriff is an allusion to the first, I don't know first, but like a, a famous uh, African-American Wild West lawman. Yeah. Bass Reeves. Uh, they died in 1934, so... Okay. So there's there's a bit of a flex on sort of the references for that time period. But, and like, give or take 20 years, it's all fair game. One of my most hated masters in the game, Nellie Cochran... <laughs> is an allusion to a very famous journalist. Nellie Bly. Nellie Bly. And Cochran is from, like, her most famous pseudonym. Nellie Bly being a historical, like, one of the first really famous reporters that sort of she started- blew the doors off of uh, how horrific mental health institutes were at that time. No goodness, there's plenty of horrific mental health institutes in Malibu. So- the, the name Nellie Bly was actually her pen name. Okay. Nellie Bly is the pen name. Then. Cochran is her middle name. Okay. There we go. Thank she started you. investigative journalism. History. <laughs> Hooray. One, uh, her henchman, uh, Fiona, is an allusion to Phineas Gage, who had 
what was it, a railroad spike go yes. into a metal his rod. brain? Yes. Yeah, and survived, albeit with a, a lot of uh, different personality states afterwards. Kind of gave himself a lobotomy, didn't he? Uh, unintentionally. Yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah. Obviously unintentionally. <laughs> but, you know, instead of Phineas Gage, we have Fiona Gage, and instead of... Well, she still has the mood swings, but now she's got cool robot parts. Because steampunk! Yay! Yay. But you've got uh, an entire keyword based on the railroad, because... Oh my god. The railroad is such an integrable and important part of American history, and I think people have kind of forgotten how important it was. But it's 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 it was so critical for how we managed to actually like move out from the east into the rest of the country. And the crew that works on the railroad is primarily uh, Chinese because that's kind of a lot of the folks that were used to build the railroads back then. Because don't have to treat them like humans! <laughs> but union culture, the concept of unions, which it was a bit earlier in um, U.S. history than 1907, 1908, which is, I think, the current year that Malfo takes place. But it's something that would have it, that would have existed, I guess, when the breach was open, and so people got that idea in their heads. And so, like, a bit, some of the big incidences of corporations versus unions back in the day were actually coal miners. And so there's that parallel to Malifaux where the people that really sort of started the big union were the miners, and then it branched out to other industries. Now let's just keep going over historical stuff, because it's cool. Is <laughs> kind of spinning off of that, but I think it's impressive with how, men, how much they can weave in the historical references while also weaving in, like, pop culture references. Yes. Uh, often at the same time. <laughs> uh, I think the, the favorite one I point to is uh, Big Trouble in Little China, uh, which they have spread across two different keywords. <laughs> yeah. 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 Someone at Weird really loves that movie. I think that's the, that's um, the most obvious one, because usually references are stuck in a single character. Mm-hmm. But this is four characters, technically. Yeah, or they or they do like the the nightmare cruise where you get the the My Little Pony references instead of the pigs or the uh, all the the like classic rockers with the Ramones and uh, everybody in I forget the name of that box now. Wild ones, but Alt, Alt, Alt McCabe, yeah, Wild ones. Alt McCabe himself is another music reference. Well, yeah. I guess they're all they're, God. They're, you just said that they're all music references. I like how gremlins gremlins are technically the most unique faction in a very very unique game, and I'm not talking about the whole gremlin thing. Uh, I, I guess combining gremlins with another uh, culture is uh, something. I guess, but I've never seen like really hillbillies and Cajun culture exist in another minis game. So they're Fine. they're they're the joke they're they're the joke faction, but the joke part of them is not the Appalachian or Cajun culture. It's the Gremlin side of them. It's the Goblin side of them. They're never really mocked for you know liking banjo music or liking moonshine. That I mean that's just a part of their culture. And then it it is te- it is technically moonshine because it is illegal. It is hmm. the guild has made it illegal because I mean that was what moonshine was. It wasn't specifically a type of alcohol. It was just that it was illegal alcohol. I'm pretty sure. 
But yeah, prohibition. Another thing they work into from history. I want to double check that now. Now that I've like stated as a hard fact, I'm going to be wrong. (laughs) And while you're looking that up, I I really think, especially from like a, a blending of interesting mythologies together as they're bringing magic into a bunch of different cultures for the game. Uh, oh, yeah. The, you find it? Yeah. Oh, yes, but I was agreeing with you. Okay. But yeah, the uh, both Appalachia and, like, Cajun cultures have really cool, not talked about enough in, in pop culture things and games, uh, mythologies and, like, ghost stories and monster tales and stuff. So weird in, in picking those have really... They've left themselves a doorway for some very interesting and unique, especially in the world of, of tabletop games, ways. Moonshine was originally a slang term for high-proof distilled spirits that were usually produced illicitly without government authorization. So yeah, alcohol, that's illegal. Moonshine. Sometimes they'll even like weave in historical stuff that's not that significant. Like, one of the outcast masters, who is arguably in control of the most advanced and powerful fighting force in Malifaux, is a man by the name of Leopold von Schell, who is a reference to another von Schell, who is a Prussian mercenary that attempted some kind of revolution. It didn't work, but um, even that, like, they're willing to go to other less overt things, and it's just a nice little rabbit hole of history. Sort of the big bad for a lot of the story that we never, we didn't really cover the story after the breach opened because um, I don't think that a whole ton of that really applies too much to you enjoying the game as much as just like a quick overview of how do all these things work together in a, in a cohesive aesthetic, but one of the big bads was the governor general, the, the governor that governed Malfo. What? The governor that governed. He governed things. Oh, He's the Robert. governor. Herbert Kitchener, whose name was actually a, a big mystery for a long time. They finally dropped that. But that is also a person that existed in history, and he was a bit of a war criminal, if okay. I recall correctly. But not, like, so bad that people would, would actually, like, learn about him unless you're in a very specific, like, British history class. But yeah, there was a douchebag back at the turn of the century by the name of Herbert Kitchener that was in uh, the British Army. Ah, it's, it's just it's just cool stuff. <laughs> I gotta keep saying it's cool. Magic? I, this is the only system? Yeah, game, this is only... I got History, fluff. This is the only fluff I've seen where instead of it saying one particular kind of magic is how magic works, it says, no, all of them are. All of them work. They just have different rules and different ways of performing them. So your sort of Harry Potter-esque, Merlin-esque wizardry is one sort of thought of magic, one theory, whereas uh, ones where you're, you know, being whispered to from the living embodiment of death or the dead embodiment of death. I'm not sure if it's living or... Anyways, that is what grants you its power, sort of a warlock type thing, but you're... um, sort of your gypsy-esque fortune-telling and curses, that kind of thing, is another one. Or even, like, one where it's built around specifically enchantment as opposed to, like, shooting fireballs or, you know, hexing people. Um, That's a different thought of magic as well. And they all technically count. They just, you know, have their 
their drawbacks and their their pluses. And Weird has kind of tied some of these major thoughts into the card system as well, which I really, really appreciate. So your kind of typical enchanting sort of thing, that would be your rams, which is spades. Uh, your necromancy or your sort of... I want to say it's kind of... Volat... Um, violative? Your violative magic? Sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because necromancy is not just raising the dead. It's sort of other things that would be considered taboo in other sort of systems like mind control is, is kind of a big no-no. That sort of violation of um, personal or living space, I guess. Um, um, and even and, and even within the resers, I think one thing that they do really well to keep the resers multifaceted and interesting, not only in, in the way that characters work, but it's not just that they're bringing up zombies or stitching them together. They also do the other end of that of instead of, hey, there's a body here, I'm going to make it move as my puppet and everybody gets freaked out over that. I would argue the I'm bringing spirits back and controlling them so that they don't go to whatever afterlife they believed in uh, is more volative, as as we put it, uh, as far as the ick factor of like what makes people uncomfortable about resers. And they do that. They, the fact that they're, they're equal opportunist in terms of, of uh, making people feel gross about them. Yeah. I mean, on top of that, the one sort of master in the game that's keyed into summoning spirits as opposed to bodies for a long time was considered a sort of anti-hero protagonist. Um, she's kind of fallen off of that. I want to say she's uh, fully on the side of um, selfish and bad at this point. But for a long time, people were kind of rooting for her. Let's talk about yeah. Easter. <laughs> <laughs> um, the company likes to have fun with lots of different things, including holidays. And uh, just point out that Easter might be the most terrifying thing in Malifaux. <laughs> Yeah, probably yeah, probably Halloween is technically scarier because more people die, but like the story behind the, the their version of the Easter bunny is great and horrific. It's basically this giant rabbit that hops around and sort of Krampus's children killing and eating the bad orphans it finds and rewarding the good orphans with uh, a dead rabbit. I mean, free meat, I guess. That's food, yeah. But they're willing to sort of play on things very whimsically and manage to make them terrifying, because you wouldn't think... You really wouldn't think a giant bipedal bunny would be scary, but uh, it is. Luther is fucking terrifying. Well, I'm not sure if they refer to him Luther in the original story. Oh, another thing, and then we'll get to you, if that's okay. It's dark and it's tragic, but on a small enough scale... And a personal enough le- level that it never, like, deadens you to it. Like, bad things... The motto of, of Malifaux is bad things happen. Bad things happen to everyone. To good people, to bad th- people, bad things happen. And a lot of the stories will end in tragedy. And it's infuriating and frustrating. And you get invested because just about everyone that dies or fails, you know their name before they die. Mm-hmm. And so instead of it being like thousands of people died in a bombing or something or other, and it's like, no, Jim died. Uh, Karen, who you've been reading about uh, for the past three pages with her hopes and dreams, has just been eaten. 
um, that sort of thing. And that's what I, another thing I really, really love about the story, because uh, you get into sort of these big fantasy sweeping battles and uh, fights for planets and other stuff like that. You don't really care about if one person dies, but in Malifaux, they managed to do, make you care. Unless it's Nicodem, fuck that guy. <laughs> <laughs> he ruined the dead man's ball. There, right there. Talk about that for a little bit. <laughs> Just the fact that people get so incensed for that, or... Yeah, well, you got incensed for it, but explain what we're talking about here. Specifically, Nicodem ruining the dead man's ball. There's a... Um... Well, who's Nicodem? Uh, Nicodem was one of the Resurrectionist Masters. He focused mainly on a lot, a lot of summoning. Um, really broken, cheesy summoning. And then? And, and I don't know what and then. He got Lady Justice. Oh, yeah. And then he died. Uh. <laughs> Not only that, it was it was a contest they held to decide yes. who would win in a fight between the two. So there's a character that I'm surprised I haven't mentioned before named Lady Justice. Sort of one of the marquee boxes, I would say, because she's very, very iconic. It's a blind lady with a big sword and her dudes following behind her are ghost riders carrying big pistols Confidence. and coffins. Yeah. Very cool, very iconic, but if you read into the fluff, she runs the organization that fights the Resurrectionists. Yes. And there's reasons for all that, but... And and they had a contest where people voted for who would live and who would die, and Nicodem obviously lost because he's trash. So in this story, Nicodem gets turned to pudding. But before this... He gets turned to pudding with a sword? Yes. I just wasn't like there's a pudding machine that he fell into. <laughs> Like some Sorry. sort of comic villain. <laughs> that would be, be kind of hilarious. That's how you get a Batman villain. <laughs> Someone falls into a pudding machine? Yeah, so now he's Pudding Man. <laughs> hey, I would. I am waiting for a good Clayface model. So, um, before this particular contest, um, there had been a, a fluff story about this, I guess, budding resurrectionist girl got invited to the Dead Man's Ball, which is basically... A huge meetup of the, I guess, strong and powerful and up-and-coming resurrectionists in Malifaux City, or Malifaux in general. Um, and they just kind of get together to party. And I guess Nicodem and Seamus got into a fight, and they ended up killing a bunch of people. Well, Nicodem specifically ended up killing a bunch of people because he's a jerk. Uh, and it pissed, pissed me off, pissed a lot of people off. <laughs> I am not the first person to be all upset because Nicodem ruined the dead man's ball. Yeah, it was just like an off-mention thing. It's like, oh, they're not doing it anymore because Nicodem specifically is just finding resurrectionists and killing them so he can steal their corpses. Not, not th- Well, I guess they would be corpses at that point, but... But also their pile of corpses that every resurrectionist has in, like, their pantry. But because he's like the big wah ha 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 I'm an evil resurrectionist... He was trying to take over the world, and it happened on the same night that uh, Mr. Kitchener, the the least dangerous-sounding name, attempted to turn himself into a tyrant. I kind of didn't want to get into that story because it's long and convoluted, but basically, he also wants all the power and decided, like, hey, you know, I could probably more or less turn myself into one of these gods. And, and nothing bad will happen. Nothing bad will happen. So it turns out he failed, and Nicodem failed. Good. And bad things happened. And then bad things happened. And then Lady Justice finally caught up to him. And I was like, 
I can go it. I, I like to root for the good guys a lot of the time. I'm very mm-hmm. basic and cheesy like that. But I also wanted uh, Lady Justice to win because she had a lot of unanswered questions about her backstory and didn't really have, like, a chance, I think, to really have her moment. Mm-hmm. Whereas Nicodem kind of culminated in the whole, I'm going to try to take over Malifa City. Oh, no, I failed. So he's had his story. Yes. Well, and, and also, as far as the different resurrectionist styles, he is, like, the most generic resurrectionist. Just, yes. Yes, let me bring in all the zombies. I'm really, really hoping that in future fluff, since while he's dead, he was caught in a soul stone and his trusty sidekick has it, I'm really <laughs> hoping that he ends up coming back as, like, something way more interesting. Uh, like, I don't know, Malifaux's first lich that would be pretty neat. Ugh. Eh. Ugh. Ugh. I don't think we need Nicodem back. I don't think so either, but I, I, I have a long-running theory that I expect the, the Dead Man's Hand Masters to come back sooner or later. Yeah, they left all of them open to coming back. So there's we're in the third edition, and from second to third edition, some Masters were sort of taken out of the picture. They're no longer technically legal in the game. Although you can still play them, they still have rules. It's just in a competitive tournament scene, usually not allowed in. And one of them died, one of them almost died, another one of them almost died, and one was arrested. Is that all for? I mean, is one of them died, one's in a hole. Yeah, almost died. One's arrested. What, what, what happened? With one got body? chopped one, into splinters on and is now a head. Okay. Now a head, sorry. Oh yeah, Resurrections, yet another historical reference. Yes. Yeah. So, here's the fun thing about Resurrections, where that name comes from. Can I? Oh yes, this is your thing. Do it. (laughs) It kind of is. So, back in the day, it was actually super illegal to, I guess, dissection of a human body for mostly religious reasons. It was considered desecrating a corpse, and uh, people felt that if your body had been if your body had been dissected, you couldn't go to heaven. So, of course, that left a lot of people kind of in the lurch for anatomy lessons in medical schools. So, for a long time, one of the punishments you could be given for committing a crime would be that once you were, you know, executed, your body would be given to a medical school or a doctor or whatever to dissect so they could study the human anatomy. But, as it turns out, That wasn't supplying enough bodies for these medical classes or for experimentation to figure out how the human body worked because we didn't know. So a thing cropped up where... An economy, if you will. A a black market of sorts where usually young men called resurrectionists would go and dig up freshly buried corpses and take them and sell them to professors at medical colleges for the sole purpose of uh, dissection and anatomy lessons, investigations, that kind of thing. It was so profitable, actually, for the people that were doing it, that there were multiple times where people had, like, um, inns or halfway houses or whatever, and they would sign their tenants up with life insurance policies, and they would poison them, collect that life insurance, and then also sell the body. Because, you know... Good old days. Why bother with digging one up when I can just make one? Exactly. There, more history for you. Yeah. But way back to our original uh, talk, now that Nicodem's dead, 
<laughs> we can we, we can throw the dead man's ball again. I don't yeah, know if they're yeah, ever yeah. going to revisit that. They probably in won't. the fluff. But it's, it's sad. If they do, I'll be super happy. You know what? Oh, we never I guess explained this. Uh, they're called soul stones because one of the ways you recharge these magical batteries is um, with a soul or as so they think because when people die around the rocks, the rocks get juice. So soul stone. Rock juice. Rock juice. Your soul is rock juice. <laughs> so when one uh, Nicodem got chopped into pudding, he are was more than were close enough. Anyways, somebody his 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 rock juice got into a rock to juice it, and so the prevailing theory is that it's possible, maybe, to extract the soul from inside a soul stone. The juice. The juice, and that person will be intact, at least mentally. And so, it's possible that Nicodem could come back in some form or another. And honestly, I prefer for them to allude to this happening, and like, oh man, Nicodem's back, Nicodem's back, what could possibly happen? We find out. out. like a dog or something. McMorning shoves him into the zombie chihuahua. (laughs) (laughs) It's over, Jeff. I'm sorry. It's fine. Yeah, no, he's stuck inside some dog butt or something, so he's screwed. It makes me happy. We've been talking about Rezzers a whole lot. You know, I'm genuinely... Rezzers are super interesting. I'm genuinely proud I haven't talked about my favorite master yet. (laughs) Are you proud of me? Yes. I'm disappointed. I want to hear about Punch Wizard McGee. Punch Wizard McGee. Okay, so Arcanists (laughs) kind of have this sub-theme about them as they're, they're kind of, they're kind of the magic, team magic, part of what freedoms they're fighting for is magical equality. The guild puts a huge dampener on what kind of magic is legal, and that's primarily healing and, like, enchantment and everything else. Uh, you either have to live your life constantly under the thumb of the guild, or you get put on this explosive collar, where uh, they can basically use you as a tool, and if you refuse, they will blow your head up. So that's one of the things that uh, the Arcanists kind of hate about the guild, and just Alongside steampunk, there is a, a large magical undertone. So you've got, like, your elemental wizard who's summoning different monsters based on the elements, and you got your ice wizard, and you got your flesh wizard, beast wizard. <laughs> and you've got your prestidigitation wizard, the, the classic magician, uh, Colette, doing, like, sleight of hand and uh, teleportation tricks and all that other stuff. You got your fire wizard who's flying around on metal wings, setting fires to thing, probably just having a blast. But then there's Tony. Then there's Tony Ironsides. There's Tony fucking Ironsides, who was my favorite master. And, uh, God, everyone's probably sick of me talking about her. But the reason I originally fell in love with her is because in this group of wizards and stompy bots, she's the person who just runs up and punches things. And originally that was just kind of her simple intent. She was an enforcer for Victor Ramos, who was kind of the steampunk guy who had a slight infatuation with spiders. But then he done get arrested because Tony kind of betrayed him uh, so that, you know, emancipation could happen in back in America. Yeah, that he thing hadn't happened yet. It. He was kind of a jerk. But I sort of like her because I'm... I tend to lean towards, like, the generally, the the good people, and she's sort of been fighting for the good thing Mm -hmm. for most of her life. 
So that's why I like her, and also like I cast fist kind of a thing. <laughs> yes. But I don't think she's any sort of historical reference. Otherwise, I'd, I'd, I would love to hear that story. Okay. You've talked about Seamus. Is there other masters you want to talk about more? Some uh, of the highlights? <laughs> BFFs. Molly and Kirai. Ah, the Grey Lord. Another, the Grey Lord. Another great story. Where, yes. Oh, go ahead. Basically, bad guys do bad things. Human sex trafficking to this brothel that only really super rich people, really super rich dudes, and Malifaux can go to. And Molly and Kirai find out about the place and basically gatecrash the party and just murder everyone. Just just kill everyone. They deserved it, though. Yeah. Uh, Roman, want to talk about the booze pope? All hail the booze pope. Um, yeah, the, uh, the brewmaster, because only in gremlin culture could they literally revere the <laughs> maker of the finest shine as a near divine being. Um, yeah, the holy leader, I guess, would be the, the way to put it. He, he, I keep saying booze poke because it sounds fun, but ultimately he's kind of more of their Dalai Lama. Okay, yeah. Which also makes a little more sense because he was originally Ten Thunders, so you, you get the, oh, the yeah, more yeah. Eastern theme going in there. But no, I, I just love how he... Ultimately, I, I feel like he's still playing uh, a bit of... Not praying, but he, he is definitely keeping things from the wider numbers of the uh, of the Bayou folks. Because when we've seen him in one of my favorite uh, stories, Bullet, which is essentially the most dangerous game of get drunk and shoot and play cards all at the same time uh, for money. <laughs> and <laughs> essentially we find out at the end of that story that, yeah, he's been bringing really good alcohol to the game, but he also brought essentially truth serum to the game. So really he's an alchemist. Like that that is his mm. his secret thing. Like the 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 booze is great, but that's that's almost his hobby. His his actual my if you read between the lines of it, I the way I look at it is he's actually there to to just alchemically make potions that do weird stuff. Uh, so he is he is the the brew wizard essentially. <laughs> But yeah, a couple of my favorite stories are of his, of, of Bullet, like I mentioned. Uh, and then in the the most recent stuff in uh, 3E, we actually get to see him fight, which I've been <laughs> waiting for ever since, like, finding out he was a character in Malifaux. And they, I only, my only wish is I wish they'd had him fight another master. But the nice thing story-wise of him not fighting another master is he can just kill them. Like <laughs> just he, just yep. wreck them. The, the the thunders are are after him. They send like a kill squad, including one of their like crime bosses who are just making themselves extra hardy and and murderous with their essentially drug smoke mask, which I think is a cool so allusion like, to like the the Bane. opium issues. Yeah, oh, kind yeah. of. But. They're shooting arrows and guns and, and just trying to take him down. He's like, I am drunkenly stumbling around and do not care. And, oh, look, you're dead now. Like, that, that is essentially what he does. If you've never seen Drunken Master with Jackie Chan, go watch it. It is that fight. <laughs> oh, cool. Yeah, it's, it's super fun. What other game is there where one of the, like, leading members of 
a faction and society is, hi, I look like I'm just a, a guy making the best alcohol when really I'm making truth serum and whatever the heck else I can make out of these weird plants and catfish people in the bayou. I can kill you with alcohol poisoning. <laughs> and that's the least interesting way I can deal with you. <laughs> I have a golem made out of whiskey barrels that will kill you too. <laughs> and I use it to ride around. <laughs> yeah, I guess we're just kind of going around talking about cool masters at this point. Um, so as much as I hate the Ten Thunders, they've got some they got some really cool stuff. Originally, I thought when I was going to eventually branch out of the Arcanist, I was thinking about Ten Thunders, and then I got very salty about a certain contest <laughs> where uh, they decided to play Kingmaker and make the Arcanist get second place instead of first place. So the reward for first place was an alt box of a master that was also dual faction with... Ten Thunders, so Ten Thunders also won first place. That that soured me. <laughs> but, okay, a couple really cool things about Ten Thunders. One, Jacob Lynch. Jacob Lynch was the guy we were talking about with Magical Opium. Not really a good person. He has... Very interesting. Yeah, he kind of has uh, a mini tyrant sort of directing him, probably the source of the drugs. But the fact that it can manifest its way in people, not only to, like through mind control, but through like cool purple gross spiking out of their body and turning into weapons. Yeah, it's just a cool aesthetic. And opium was a serious issue in eastern countries around this time. And they don't they don't tie him with specifically opium, but since he's in the Asian faction and the horrifically addictive nature of it and how controlling it is over you once you become addicted to it, I think is probably the closest illusion illusion they're going to get to without getting too real world, real world serious, I want to say. Mm-hmm. They, they ride that line pretty well, where they, they're willing to cover certain topics that some people find uncomfortable without making them, without either going overboard and being kind of wacky and cartoony or offending people. They've come a long way. They've matured a long way from the days of first edition where they made some missteps, but all in all... Oh, you want to talk about representation? This is kind of fluff. Yeah. My god, Malifaux. Holy shit. I think we're going we're gonna to revisit that. That was one of the first topics mm-hmm. we covered in this podcast. And they've only gotten better. And I, I just can't think of any other game that's, like, as representative without either, like being cleanly so, Guild Ball. Um, <laughs> no, like, Guild Ball does have representation, but a lot of it seems like, hey, look, we have this character. She's a lesbian. You know that because that's the first thing we introduce her as is a lesbian because we're inclusive. We have a lesbian. Guys, look, we have a lesbian. I still like Guild Ball. I like it. I like Guild Ball. It's my second game, but that always kind of bugged me a bit. But, like, different body types? I have not seen any sort of variety like that. And they keep... Like, at the worst times, I'm going to say about a third of the models were women in Malifaux, and it's only gotten better since then. Mm-hmm. And it's also a thing that's kind of hard to measure because there's a lot of things that don't have a gender. They just have a more masculine body type than a feminine body type. And do you count those as men? I don't know. But, yeah, and weirdly enough, a lot of the, the like, powerhouse... Um, going to destroy you with my fists or swords or guns characters in the game are women. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Which kind of goes against expectation, I think. Because a lot of people, I think, 
a lot of, or at least, okay, I don't want to say a lot of people, but I think what you might immediately in, initially think about is like, oh, they have lots of female characters. They're probably like the manipulators, the uh, that shitty trope and mm-hmm. sort of thing that gets thrown out. That or they're just the eye candy, which is not the case. <laughs> Um, they had a few models like that, but they've definitely corrected on that, which I'm really, really proud of them for. But, yeah, not only that, but... And I mean, honestly, even the master that technically should be the eye candy, in the fluff, and then I think also in the game, she uses that to her advantage, so... Which one are we talking about? Colette. Oh, okay. I was talking about yeah. the Vix. <laughs> yeah, no, the, the Vix were always one of the ones uh-huh. of... of them kind of holding to like this they wanted to sort of retain some of the identity of the models they had originally created i don't know if it was like first edition or even before that when they were just a models company but they've managed to let that go the more troublesome stuff and to a point where like it's not overt that they're being inclusive it's just it's just there it's just normal mm-hmm and there's nothing that you, like, really question about them, like, trying to force it down your throat or any sort of thing. The same goes with minorities, even though this is... The setting is heavily centered around both American and British culture, but the sort of other cultures that are influencing that, or even that are a part of that, are well represented. Mm -hmm. And even um, going so far as, like, the group with the most minorities outside of the strictly Asian faction are the ones that sort of representing the the lower class, because at this point equality was definitely not a thing, and people of color were treated worse. But anyways, uh, let's get to Yoko Hamasaki that kind of covers several of these I'm not sure about this kind of things. Um, She runs the most profitable brothel for the Ten Thunders. And while that it's a very hard thing to represent as not demeaning, I think they do a very, very good job because she is also pretty much the spy master mm-hmm. of the Ten yeah. Thunders. And along that, it's not just it's not just a brothel. Her theme is around geisha culture, which is yes. <sighs> It's very, very hard to explain, but it is something that is incredibly more respected than what you would consider a prostitute to be in Western culture. And that's like the best way you can represent someone of that profession, of that era that's historically accurate and not like Mm -hmm. offensive and a problem. Yeah. Geishas weren't just sex workers. They were way more than that. But yeah, Yoko's Yoko's great. Oh, uh, the other Ten Thunders I was going to talk about. I really, 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 really like McCabe. McCabe is cool. McCabe is such a simple concept that you just hear it and you're like, oh, that's awesome. He's Indiana Jones, but the artifacts and relics he steals are magical. And instead of just putting them in a museum, he's handing them out to his friends and whatnot and basically giving them minor superpowers. It's simple and it's cool. Also, he gets to ride a horse. Surprisingly (laughs) few horses in this game. I think it's McCabe and Reva are the horse people. For Besides masters, the riders. Yeah. yeah, for masters. And Reva loves her horse so much that when she dies, uh, the horse doesn't die. They both die. McCabe doesn't care about his horse. <laughs> just that. I'm just, I guess, okay. So anything else cool about Ten Thunders? We'll just walk backwards 
from newest to sort of oldest of the factions and anything cool you want to say about the faction. They've got some cool, like, Asian mythology things that have gotten put in there. Uh, like the yeah. Shikome and uh, Yin, because I'm not going to attempt to pronounce that. Shikomes are only Rezzers. Oh, are uh, they? Yeah. Okay. They, they no, might I, be I know. They're, they're Yurami. Oh, okay. okay. They're Yurami. Oh! That's, that's where you're getting the Asian flavor from. Okay. That's that's new, isn't it? No. That's Kirai's. Oh. Oh, yeah. God. I completely forgot about Kirai. Whoops. Kirai for Ten Thunders. Who has very, like, Asian spirit theme. Mm-hmm. But then you have, like, Asami, who yes. is definitely a corporal mythological person. Mm-hmm. Within the Oni. Yep. That summon other very corporal mythological creatures. Um, we've got the Tanuki. Fucking Tanuki. <laughs> Um, but no, just the incorporation of Asian mythology is, I think, unusual to see, and it's cool to see. Yeah. Also, most dragons per capita perfection. <laughs> yes. Most Bernie Wheelmen per capita perfection as well. Uh, I don't know. I think it's tied with Rezzers, because Reva can yeah, take one, you know. Because Rez- Reva can bring him. <sighs> Fair. Fine. Sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry I ruined your joke. Let's move on let's move on to Bayou. Uh, we already talked in length about the booth Pope. Um, one of the other like aspects of Gremlin culture that isn't tied specifically into like Cajun or Appalachia is their penchant for mimicry. So actually uh, quite a few of the masters are mimicking or channeling another master in the game because they're just very, very good at that. And sometimes they're better than the original master at the thing they're doing. So there's a lady that hunts Neverborn who's got the pistol. She's the the typical cowboy keyword. And then there's a, a gremlin that's pretty much exactly similar to her, but they have complete, really, di- really different play styles. Why am I completely drawing a blank on all the <laughs> copycat? Ophelia. That was who I was just talking uh, about. Um, a little help, Roman. Uh, Wong? Sort of? Really, most of it's all in Ophelia's keyword, because they're all cosplaying different... Uh, okay. Vegeta family members. Yeah. Like, all right. Francois is Francisco. Uh, I'm going to get all the rest of them incorrect. <laughs> Raphael is Santiago. Who's Nina? Uh... Pierre. No. No. Pierre's, uh, is, is, uh, Papa Loco. Okay. Papa. So, correcting myself, (laughs) there is one keyword that is very specific to being the copycat, but then there are different copycats sprinkled about. The, uh, Bernie Fire Angel Lady from the Arcanist has an analog in Gremlins, as well as, like, the, the, uh, Swamp Witch has her own copycat crap like that oh yeah sammy i was forget about sammy samuel lacroix let's talk about pigs <laughs> so part of gremlin culture that we kind of alluded to before is that they are very pig centric pig crazy that is their most reliable s- source of food but pigs in the bayou are one the size of small cars and two pretty pretty darn freaking smart i mean pigs in general are smart so before humans came along and taught gremlins about guns and booze quite often pigs would eat gremlins and gremlins would eat pigs but now they're sort of farming them and so there is a pig-centric master that is all about summoning pigs and 
growing them up to bigger pigs, and he is a blast. And he is, of all things, a reference to the Odyssey, <laughs> which one of the deeper cuts, like, it takes you, because his name is a play off of the Romanized version of Odysseus in the form of Ulix. And Odysseus' wife was Penelope, which is Ulix's totem, which is a dog. Hopefully they're not in that same kind of relationship. <laughs> but also Ulix wields a bow and has a missing leg. And Odysseus had an injured leg, which was caused by a boar, of all things. So, history. But pigs are great because they just go around and they're very fast and they slam into things and they are unlike a lot of other things in the game they're usually forced to declare a trigger which is when you um, have a suit for something you can declare that trigger but i want to say he's he's just cool there that's it all i want to say is he's cool i like it looks do you like any gremlins victoria gremlins not a real faction okay Roman. Actually, honestly, they're not my aesthetic, but I do like the kind of chaotic energy that just exudes from every single one of them. And that's pretty much what I have to say about Gremlins. Roman. I mean, Bruy is is my homeboy. And we've already talked about him. Beyond him, Wong, I've always found really cool, uh, both game style and in the fluff. Actually, right now, I really want to find out what he's doing in the fluff because when last we saw him he was just hanging out around where the red cage fell which is not a safe place place. yeah exactly it's not it's neither safe nor boring there so he must be doing something if not of consequence then at least worth reading about Wong so yeah Wong's pretty cool uh It took me a minute to warm up to him, but I, I really do like Zip. He's yeah. super annoying on the table, but I, I love what they've done with him in the fluff since they brought him over dual faction-wise to uh, Outcasts. Uh, him, him hanging out with Parker is hilarious to me, and I want that show on TV somewhere. So Zip is a gremlin who sort of was infatuated with old radio serials, which is a bit later in actual history than this time period but of course there's that little bit of flexibility in there and so he fancied himself to be a villain and so he has been basically living larger than life trying to live up to that monologue and evil laughs sort of stereotype and he found himself a jetpack and stole himself a blimp apparently filled to the brim with pianos and he's probably like the most eccentric of the gremlin masters despite being tool faction. Like, Summer's the most gremlin gremlin, but yeah, Zip really exudes that energy we're talking about, Victoria, I think more than any other of the other gremlins. Yep. So very lovely. He and that He exudes that energy and a lot of exhaust. Yes. A lot of that uh, very pretty and difficult sculpts to assemble and paint in that crew box. Moving on, uh, Outcasts. Uh, I still like Von Schill. He's that uh, Prussian guy we talked about earlier. He's kind of like, I don't want to say the leader, but he's also at this point kind of a leader of the faction. But there's kind of that crew that the rest of the faction is sort of reflective of or in reaction to. Sort of like how the guild is our point of reference for normal. There's usually like 
iconic box or something that represents that faction more than anything. I think, really, it's been Von Schill, as even though a lot of people don't really like him or find him to be boring, just because a lot of the outcasts are mercenaries, and he's, like, the epitome of mercenary in the fluff. Whereas, like, Ten Thunders, it's Misaki, and for Bayou, it's Summer. I think it's... I think it's one show. I would argue that the Vex are probably... Up there, if not mm-hmm. the actual one. Yeah. I'd, I'd say it's those two crews are two sides of the same coin. One is very professional it. and wearing the same uniforms. The other one is just just a hot mess of different like outfits and ideas. And even from like 2E to 3E, a huge change in appearance. I was going to say one's melee and one's more ranged, but sure. Well, I mean, it's, it's Von Schill is only really ranged specific in the minions, but the the yeah. Anyways, we're not talking about fluff here. But I always like Von Schill because the aesthetic is cool. The uniforms are cool. His mechanic is a lot of like handing out weapons to his comrades and then just jumping into the fray and throwing people around with his metal arm. It's great. Parker is enjoyable just because we finally get that classic bandit character from Wild Wests. Oh, God. You want to talk about Tara? Uh, what specifically about Tara? Just oh. the fact that she's best girl? Yes. Or? Yes. Tara's best girl. Um, she's undead. Her... Is Karina her totem still? Or is she... Yeah. Her, her totem is actually the person who resurrected her. But best thing about Tara, not only does she have a lobster lobster claw arm, but she has a giant friggin' hole through her chest. Depends on, I think, which sculpt has a lobster claw arm, but it's not a permanent attachment. She just can use powers of obliteration? The only true sculpt has the lobster claw arm. Okay, okay, fine. <laughs> Tara's probably one of the more, like, Malifaux, Malifaux models that Malifaux... Just because yeah. she is like an amalgamation of themes, she's she looks like a cowboy, but she is an undead character. She died. She got a giant hole shot to her chest and then came back to life. But also, she is channeling the powers of one of these tyrants. She's summoning these, you know, horrific monster creatures that are also adorable, depending on which one she's summoning. Void wretches are cute. Fight me. <laughs> it's yeah. It's really kind of a good representation of Malifaux. Roman, what are your favorite outcasts? Ah, uh, well, I I super do dig the Vix just for the mm-hmm. whirling dervish of death that they are, and also super interested to see what happens with them going forward in the fluff since they were kind of starting to go crazy because the sword they were using had a tyrant in it that fed off blood, as previously mentioned. And, uh, yeah, they were starting to fall prey to that. But now, you know, Titania has it. And that can't be bad for anyone. Anybody. <laughs> at all. Not well, what could no possibly happen. Yeah, no, super interested to see where that goes. Uh, Von Schill, I, I agree with Doug, is uh, the Free Corps in general are, are an interesting group to follow. Just because in a faction of outcasts they are the the most cohesive unit uh and without them i i don't think you have freehold as an offshoot settlement 
happening. And yeah, they've been doing an okay job at that so far. I, I haven't played him, but Fluffwise, Super Dig Parker, as previously mentioned, the, the bandit theme, the, the one thing that they could have done to make him more appealing to me, Fluffwise, is instead of alluding to Bonnie and Clyde, go for Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, but that's just me. <laughs> the only I, thing I wish they would have done was calm his cape down. Nah. <laughs> that thing is going nuts on that skull. It is. It is. But yeah, lots of cool different things in the outcasts for sure. You have a man that was that was hanging on a on a hanging tree, and now he's sort of going around punishing people that are for being guilty, whether or not they're actually guilty. You have a great, not historical reference, but mythology reference in Hamlin who, if you've ever heard the story of the Pied Piper of Hamelin, will fully understand what this crew is about. But he's, you know, your, your chaff summoner that's bringing on just a ton of models onto the game. Rats, to be specific, or rat-like things. Who am I forgetting? we got Jackie Jackdaw, we got Hamelin, Tara, Vex, Bonchelle, Parker. Zip. Zip. It's number eight. Someone's screaming at us, screaming at us right now. Well, obviously they can't be that important. Levy. Leviticus. Oh, Leviticus. oh god, we, we we blacked that out. <laughs> or like the guy who plays off of entropy and may or may not like underaged people. Like that that was that was a illusion of something that might be the case that we just run with because it's we like we like coming up with villains. We like coming up with people to root for and people to hate. And it's just very easy to hate on Leviticus. He's a very well written character though. But yeah, that's the outcast. And I get I guess that's the reason why I considered. Von Schell to be sort of the representative box because he's the only person like with a bigger plan in mind that isn't take over the world or kill everything. And he's trying to sort of bind the group together that's defined about not being bound together for some reason. Also, impressed with myself that I didn't correct you on your pronunciation during that entire time, Roman, thank you. Yeah, sorry about that. I knew as soon as I said it that I said it incorrectly. <laughs> Flexing my ability to, to understand how German's supposed to pr- be pronounced is a thing I do. I, I apologize. Um, but Freikor, if you're new to the game, I will always correct you if you don't call it Freikor. Kyle. Uh, moving on. Neverborn. Neverborn. This is probably, like, the faction that gets people into the game the most. People really, really like the aesthetics oh, of sure. the Neverborn. Yeah. And, like, monster creatures aren't that common in Wargaming, I think, or, like... Like, they're one specific kind of monsters, whereas Neverborn is several different kinds. You got your demons, you got your puppets, which are no longer technically... Well, they're a sub-theme, they're not a full theme. Their master kind of died a bit, partially. But you got literal nightmare creatures being pulled out of the ether by this cackling teenage boy. You used to have Mr. Opium, not anymore. Now you've got the, the beast dude from Arcanus coming over and playing with them because you know if he's full focused on you know beasts animals he's probably more in tune with the natives than he is with humans at that point um you have especially with the queen of the fairies yes the queen of the fairies titania herself i don't know what the pronunciation is on that please correct me um you're right titania okay cool Mm -hmm. um she just needs a prettier dress is all you have you have a giant that is also an oracle in Euripides. Kind of want to buy that crew box to play because it looks like a lot of fun. I guess 
I wasn't supposed to be talking about Crusoe like in the faction, man. I'm just going into generalities. Um, yeah, I really like Euripides because I've always been wanting to have like a character that fit onto a larger base that wasn't just because they're riding a horse. And now I have it, and he's terribly unique in that like giants as a theme hasn't I just haven't seen that almost at all unless like they're the bad guys but in this case they're just natives you know protecting their land as you will I guess the other theme that I really enjoy is uh, I was gonna like, almost said Jacob Lynch again whoopsie no screw it I actually like uh Nakima who is now leading the the demon people um, she's a bit straightforward. She's almost cartoony levels of sort of a bad guy in the fluff recently. But I just, I kind of have a soft spot for straightforward killing types at times. And she scratches that itch. But anyways, Victoria, what do you like in the Neverborn? Well, originally when I was going to get into Malifo, I thought I was going to be a Neverborn player. And then Seamus happened. <laughs> I was dragged kicking and screaming into Resurrectionists. But just the overall aesthetic is so cool. Uh, just the creepy crawlies and things that go bump in the night. The entire thing about it. But they're not... Um, they're, and also Baby with a Knife. Baby with a Knife. And a little girl uh, offering you candy that's definitely not like poison or anything. Yeah. I think, like, you you touched on it. Like, one of the cool appeals is that these are monsters, but they're also... I don't want to say people. They're technically not people. That's what defines them, but... They're, they're characters. Yes. They have their positives and their negatives. And just because they look like things that we are sort of been told from very early age are scary or wrong doesn't mean they're bad. They're just different. And these worlds have been tied together for a long time. And that's sort of why we kind of recognize these already as the scaries, the nightmares and whatnot is because there have been crossovers. This, the breach that I mentioned before in the sort of history wasn't the first one. This is just the big one. Anyone besides Pandora? Dora was one of the two that originally got me really interested in the game. The other was Lilith. And that's actually what drew my attention at first because I was walking through a game room and I heard somebody say, well, Lilith does X. I can't remember what it was. And I was like, hold up. I know that name. So the whole Mother of Monsters thing kind of drew me in and got me interested. And then, of course... Uh, Resurrectionists may have full of me, but... <laughs> Roman! Dreamer is definitely the uh, first one that jumps out at me, just because of the, the breadth of that theme. Also, Spider People. Yeah, he, he's, he's the first big one that I jumped into. Uh, Titania is probably the second, and I haven't bought her yet, but uh, Pandora is definitely on the list as well. Uh, ironically, one of the reasons I haven't bought her yet is I, I, I like the idea of Baby with a Knife and Girl with Poison Candy. Baby with a Knife Sculpt does less than nothing for me. <laughs> I want a little more something there. But Teddy. More Teddy. I guess that would, that would be covered in Dreamer. Never mind. Yeah. Possibly the most iconic model in the game is Neverborn. A giant, murderous teddy bear. Okay. Yep. Let's uh, let's go over to our... <laughs> Uh, you know, you've already heard my spiel ah, about Ironside. Uh, you've already heard my spiel about Ironside, so um, won't get into her again. I will uh, depict another master that I really, really like, and I'm not going to go with Karis because I feel like that's 
the obvious choice on my part. I'm going to go with Mayfang. It's technically my third Arcanist Master, but she is the lady who runs the people that make the railroads, so there's much more historical tie to her than, than Karis is. I think how much firebombing was going on in the Americas around this time, I'm not entirely sure, but it's a really cool play on, like, you kind of have a bit of an elemental theme, partially, in the faction with both, like, an Ice Master and a Fire Master, and a guy who summons... Um, different elemental creatures, but Mayfang both plays into this trend and kind of bucks it because she is, one, tied to fire, but two, tied to metal, which is in the Chinese elements, not your typical Western one, which is like water, fire, earth, and wind. Some Chinese is metal, wood, wind, water, and fire, I I think. I'll Google it or something all the time, but... The fact that she has control over technically two elements and uses it uses it her to her own advantage while also playing into the steampunk, what with like a train golem that hits you with a railroad. Ty. Yeah. Uh, things are really cool. Victoria, you you love the whole faction, don't you? Arcanus. Yes. Eh, I think Karis is cool because I like angry ladies <laughs> with poor impulse and emotional control. Um. It's hot. Um, I also really like Colette, mostly because I like her models. They're pretty. They got pretty clothes. <laughs> they got pretty poses. Roman, you want to elaborate on that one? I mean, I, I got to back up Victoria. She's clearly a, <laughs> a, a woman of class and good taste uh, when it comes to Colette and Karis. Specifically, I have to, to second Colette. She was my, my second master, and there's a reason for that. The only reason she was the second was I wanted to play the game before she was out and Brew was already out. But yeah, no, I, I love the idea of a really good illusionist mm-hmm. uh, and putting that, combining that with the stage magician as the, the front of the illusionist is just, it, it's elegant in its simplicity. I love it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I want more illusion, illusiony stories because I find those are always fun to, to read and watch. And, you know, Karis, what's not to like? You got your classic Fire Mage and Icarus story all wrapped in one. Mm-hmm. Also, to, to go back to Colette for a minute, uh, Pretty Lady's Pretty. Yes, yes, yes. Colette and the Showgirls and Carlos Vasquez, who's just... Also pretty. Just great. He is also a pretty man. Another another historical reference, before we move on to Rezos real quick. Not necessarily a specific historical reference, but stage magic illusionists, escape artists, that sort of thing was kind of booming around this time as well. So the age of Harry Houdini and all that. Hmm. Yeah. Okay, Resurrectionists. I mean, I, <laughs> I gotta, I gotta, I gotta appreciate Dougie McMorning just because we share a first name. <laughs> Who, um, you would think is, like, all about, like, putting models together and, like, creating horrific beasts. And while he was a bit of a summoner back in the previous edition, he's definitely more focused on what he is more known for in the gameplay, but not fluff-wise. He's the melee beater of of the faction, specializing also in giving things lots and lots of poison. Um, which you wouldn't really expect eh, from a, you know, scientist-y looking dude. But I really like that. Also, he's just, just, just adorably crazy. On top of that, I will leave Molly and Seamus to you. Thank you. Ma'am. I appreciate that. Mechanically, I really like Yanla. 
Yeah, let's talk about Yanlo. Uh, Yanlo is this spirit dude that summons sort of ancient ancestors and stuff like that uh, to do battle. I don't think he does any actual summoning summoning, but his shtick is that he gets more and more... He starts off relatively weak and gets more and more powerful every turn of the game. And I think that's cool, but we didn't come here to talk about mechanics. So, should, oh god. Oh, I mean, do you want to do you want to cover Von Stuck? Cuz if you're not going to cover Von Stuck, I, I got to gush about this man real quick. I wasn't planning to. Oh, sorry, no Oh, Okay. Go for it. Okay, Von Stuck fancies himself an educator and has delightfully gone off the the mental rails, but he's actually managing to upkeep an actual educational institute. Admittedly, all the students are undead, but they seem cognizant enough to actually learn and do stuff in this university. And the aesthetic is very much like gross amalgams of humans and machines, so robot zombies, which is super stinking cool. Okay, Roman. Well... Seamus was definitely the first reser that I picked up because, yeah, crazy, crazy man in a large hat. But as far as the the more I read the fluff, the more I appreciate McMorning, definitely. And Doug, you, you and I just have too many uh, interests in common. Jan also, as I see more of him, I'm like, you're just an interesting way of, of doing the resurrectionist thing if you're like this undying spirit ancestor who gets stronger the more he remembers of his past. But yeah, between that and, and McMorning's actual motivation being like trying to find immortality through resurrection magic, fluff-wise, those two are probably the most interesting to me. Also the source of one of my favorite photoshops is the greatest meme in Malifaux. <laughs> Like, the one angry, you made? Yeah, Angry Tony is possibly as a, as my actual fear. But hey, Mac morning. Hilarious. Okay, we're finally back to the guild and to the end of this episode. So let's... Oh, crap. I'm sorry. Go. So, like, obviously my thing is Seamus and Molly. We kind of talked already about how and why I like Seamus. He's kind of my boy. And then Molly, of course, because... She's adorable and cute and kind of crazy. And um, she got herself away from the toxic, abusive relationship that she had with Seamus. So go, girl. You're a queen. (laughs) Um, And who doesn't like Molly? Honestly, I have not met a single person that doesn't like Molly. They've really kind of initially made her from a side character into her own thing. And Mm -hmm. I love the idea of like... There's lots of zombies out there that have no master, and they're just kind of wandering around, and they find solace and comfort with her. Yes. And the fact that she's now bubbly and nice and Mm -hmm. fun, but also, like, very willing to kill people. Absolutely. Like, she'll either slap a bow on you, or she'll cut your tongue out. You Or she doesn't kill unless she has to, as well. Yeah, the the parallel between she and Seamus and Harley Quinn and the Joker are numerous and more correct the longer you look at them. Yes, this is true. Although I kind of like how with Weird, they, from the start, portrayed it as, hey, this is super abusive and messed up, guys. Please don't ship them. Whereas I feel like the Joker and Harley Quinn didn't really get that kind of spin on their relationship at first. What? Can we go to Gilda? Yeah. Okay, cool. Molly is great. 
Molly is great. Molly is yes. great. Killed. The boring... F- no. <laughs> <laughs> they were my second pick for second factions just because, one, there wasn't a lot of guild players in my area, and two... It just kind of felt unrepresented overall because you, you you have you have a soft spot for normal boring humans. Yeah, I do. Not too terribly normal, but just yeah, the standard is like someone's got to be the people, right? I don't mind playing the people. So, Gamble will talk about Lady Justice. So I'm not going to go over her again. I'm going to go over one that is kind of my new favorite because he's the most normal of normal that no- normal normal, <laughs> Mister Normal, and that is Dashiell who started off as, like, an enforcer in first edition and then became a henchman. And these are, like, ranks in the game, like, general ideas of how powerful models are. So he was a henchman in second edition. Now he's his own master. He's Commander Dashiell, and he kind of hates that because he's kind of an Arlie Ermey sort of drill sergeant. And he's the summoner in the group, and so he just summons guards. Guards. Guards on horses, guards not on horses, a barking guards, which I think are called dogs. Uh, that sounds right. Yeah, guards without hands, but instead of hands, they got murder blades. Guards. Robot guards? Yes. Guards. Robot guards. Rose, robot prison guards. <laughs> um, so it's, it's sort of dumb and delightful. It's like, it's the guy there that brings up, like, yeah, there's just a general policing force in this world as well. Don't forget about them. They can do stuff. And I can't believe I'm saying this, but I'm going to bring up, uh, I'm going to bring up Nelly. Oh, no. I'm going to bring up Nellie Cochran because I go on a rant in another podcast about why I hate her, but it's one of those things where, like, she's so well-written in a hateable way. I'm having so much fun doing this. But I think she's, like, the best representation of Malifaux in that we're a game that has combat, but that's not necessarily how you win. Example, this lady who is a reporter, she's running around the field with a quill and a piece of paper, and her totem is this little spider that's just a printing press, and her normal, like, minions are field reporters and false witnesses, <laughs> and a dude in a barrel, and not a weapon amongst them. And it's so great that, like, you could rock up to a table with a bunch of people that aren't armed and still win a game. I think that's so cool. And well, really, the reason for that. Because they get so annoyed with her that they rage quit? <laughs> Well, because the pen is mightier than the sword. Uh, what about bullets? I don't know. I'm, I'm never not, said anything about I'm guns. Not that great at math. <laughs> okay, Victoria. I don't, I don't know how the the math of of sword versus bullet versus pen works. Ah, <laughs> uh, guild, 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 the guild. Uh, I would have to say right now. I enjoy Lady Justice. She seems to be one of the few actually good people in Malifaux. Or in the guild, actually. One of the few actually good people in the guild. Just trying to stop resurrectionists from murdering and stealing bodies and doing their evil resurrectionist magic. feel really bad for her because um, how long McMorning had all of them tricked. But besides Lady Justice, I also like Hoffman. He's, he's a puppy. He is the most adorable little puppy. And he's also really interesting because he's, you know, paralyzed. He basically has to have this mechanical rig that he uses to move him around. And I think it's really neat that they have somebody in the game with a physical disability like that. He got it from what I can't remember. Polio. was yeah, okay. 
like that's what I thought they were alluding to, but I don't know if they ever actually confirmed it. But yeah, he's got them polio legs. Yeah. That's probably a very offensive thing to say, but there's not a lot of people with polio nowadays. But you know, instead of an iron lung, uh, he's walking around with his own like robot harness. Yes. He's the robot guy. Also, he's sort of just trying to do right and lived most of his mm-hmm. life in his brother's shadow. So, that. Romance. So, here we found where, where you and I differ. Whereas you <laughs> like the, the regular humans, I like the uh, totally not regular humans hiding amongst <laughs> the regular humans. And as far as the guild goes, Lucius is my homeboy. Yeah. <laughs> he is um, the foppiest fop. He is, like, but also capable of just straight up murder. Lucius is just so extra. Mm-hmm. Tell us about Lucius real quick. Well, <laughs> just the fact that he's, and, and especially this most recent uh, story of him in the Guild book. Uh, if you haven't read it, go buy the book. Go buy the PDF. However you need to find it, go read it. It is phenomenal because it is about evenly split between... Lucius having an inner office like angry boner at his new boss. <laughs> um, it's about evenly split between that and the the inner office politics of how he's trying to maneuver back to a position of power, and also him actually doing the dirty work in order to do so. So previously, we've we've seen him be the the fop with the. Uh, entourage of, of hangers on just doing whatever he flicked a finger to go do and he still has a few of those but his his power is diminished enough with the new governor general that he has to actually like roll up his sleeves and go do dirty work uh, and, and give Dashiell credit for it but the point where he is actually like I don't want to give too much away but when, when he is uh leaving one of the the characters in the game that is generally known to know everything they need to know and they're going, I don't know what you are. And he's like, I'm going to keep it that way. Um, (laughs) And then just follows it up by just straight up killing or dismembering that which should not be killable uh, and and giving Dashiell credit for it. You're just like, maybe we shouldn't fuck with Lucius. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, but yeah, that and then story-wise again, like a, a character I, I love to hate, but also is has previously been instrumental in pushing the story and understanding of the world forward is Sonya. Like Boo. I know, I know, and and the Arcanist part of me is <laughs> is cringing at the fact that I said that, uh, just like it does every day when I realize it again. But like, yeah, no, the the uh, horrible disfigurement and mind erasure and retraining to be like suicide bombers with suicide bombers and wizard sniffing bloodhounds is is not you know great as far as a, a thing humans should do to other humans. But the like not doing proper paperwork in order to collect and amass more arcane knowledge of this strange world so that she can look through it and find actual potential problems as opposed to just what will allow the guild to maintain and increase its control leading again to making sure one of the most powerful tyrants doesn't show up and just wreck havoc without some of the other tyrants trying to stop it uh, earlier on in the fluff. I'm, I'm waiting for her to do more of a story driving beat like that again. 
I'd be okay if she just got hit by a truck. <laughs> Rude. She's another like easily hateable person that's well written. That's that's yeah. what I'm expressing there. Yeah. Yeah, okay. So that's us uh going on a almost two hour rant about things we love in the fluff. Goodness this went this got out of hand. I apologize. But you know, hopefully you got some entertainment out of that. Hopefully you new folks that have decided to stick around for this entire thing kind of understand Malfa Fluff, why we love it, why it's great, and maybe you're interested in the game now. I don't know. But thank you for listening, and we'll be back in two weeks, almost definitely. Thank you, Victoria, for coming back. Mm-hmm. And all y'all look forward to uh, uh, an episode that's probably going to be run by her. I'll just be color commentary <laughs> in the future or uh, be terrified of it, depending on the su- what you feel about the subject. Thank you for Roman again. You're welcome, and you can't get rid of me. No, I can't. I'm contractually <laughs> obligated to include you in this now. <laughs> Don't listen to leprechauns, people. Anyways, thank you, listener, and have a good night. And as I always say, fun is always king. Goodbye. Bye. Bye. Songs used in this production are Villainous Treachery and Five Card Shuffle. All music is created by Kevin McLeod and is licensed under Creative Commons.